Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about this video by a Calvinist. It's called Perseverance of the Saints. And this is by a guy, and he calls himself Sherlock Holmes. And it's funny. He, he went to a bunch of open theist Facebook groups, and he posted his videos as if he thought his videos would be persuasive to open theists who do not agree with his priors. But he went around and he did that. He's trying to jam up some traffic. He's trying to style himself as this go-to Calvinist expert. And he's trying very hard. He's trying very hard. So I'm going to just hit play and we could see some of that. And we could see what his arguments are. Welcome back to my YouTube channel. I'm Sherlock Helms. And today we're going to conclude our look at the five points of Calvinism by looking at the last two doctrines in this series, Irresistible Grace and Perseverance of the Saints. He's got this uh, Calvin thing with a pipe, and then he himself has got his little little um, beard going on, and his trendy glasses, his hipster glasses, and then his little his little icon. He's got suspenders and a bow tie. This guy is hardcore signaling, virtue signaling to his Calvinist people. He's trying to be saying, "Oh, I got all the things that make me a Calvinist." There's nothing wrong with suspenders or ties. I like all that stuff, but. Just this, this hardcore, desperate signaling is pretty funny to me. But let's let's see what he says and see if he has any arguments for perseverance of the saints. So what do we mean by irresistible grace? Well, a simple way to look at it is that if God has chosen someone to be saved before the foundations of the world, then they will necessarily... So his argument, his argument is that God chose people before the foundation of the world. I thought, I thought God was timeless. I thought God was immutable. I thought God had eternal decrees that were timeless decrees. Not that God chose people before a point in the past. You know, Calvinists have to reject the Bible. If the Bible says God did something before the foundation of the world, they have to say, well, no, he didn't. God's timeless and immutable. He didn't actually do that then. God's decrees are timeless in Calvinism. So there's no before the foundation of the earth. And let's talk about what God did pick before the foundation of the earth, which is probably better translated as the downfall of the earth, Adam and Eve's fall, or, or the biblical flood that we know of in Genesis 6. That God, he chose a remnant to be saved, and he tried to get that remnant saved through Abraham, and that continually failed through Israel. And one theme that we kind of see throughout the Bible is this idea of a remnant, this remnant of Israel, who God keeps punishing Israel, trying to destroy Israel because Israel keeps rejecting God. And God promises them that this remnant's going to be saved. This remnant's going to come through all the trials and persecutions. And this remnant was a dynamic group. So we see statements in the Bible like, God, please stop punishing and destroying Israel because you're going to kill this remnant as well. There is a very real possibility that this remnant would be wiped out, that this righteous group that God is trying to form would be wiped out. Because the future is open, the group's not set, individuals are not chosen. So when Paul writes that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, or the downfall of the world, or the biblical flood, he is saying that this remnant was a determined group to exist. And what does John the Baptist say? He says, even if all the children of Abraham reject me, 
God can raise up new children out of these stones because God has contingency plans. Even if the entire world falls apart, God is more resourceful. And there's never this idea of this individual picking of salvation for every single person to ever exist. That's not the idea that they're going for. This is a dynamic group that doesn't have to exist, that God wants to exist, and God will make to exist. And what are the properties? One of the things is they're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. But let's go on. Necessarily be saved. If you've been following my videos, this doctrine will be further fleshed out. But for sake of brevity, when God chooses to save someone, he gives them a new heart. If you remember, this is called regeneration. This concept of regeneration, Calvinists often like to claim that God, when, when you become a Christian, God like fills you and gives you some sort of enlightenment. And what that reminds me of is Gnosticism, Calvinism, Platonism. They're all on the same level when it comes to this enlightened elect that's given this spiritual ability to see these untold mysteries. It's not an Old Testament concept in the least. You don't see the Old Testament prophets talking about individuals being chosen and then enlightening and being enlightened through this uh, spiritual process. You don't. You, you get concepts like that, statements like that in the New Testament, maybe in John. He's going to point to John, also in Paul. But, but here's the thing. John, have you read John? Have you read the book of John? It's, it's hard to follow. It's hard to understand. It's very cryptic. So trying to make theology off of these cryptic sayings, probably not a good idea. And Paul as well. Uh, his fellow apostles said Paul writes a lot of hard things that are hard to understand. They didn't quite get what he's saying. So if you're trying to say that these concepts tentatively derived from limited sources in the New Testament needs to be retroactively applied over everything we know in the Old Testament, Old Testament theology, and this, these New Testament concepts pulled out of context and interpreted in very idiosyncratic understandings. The Calvinists, they say, our understanding has to be the understanding of these verses, and we reject all of their understandings. And then we'll take our understandings and we'll impose that onto the Old Testament, and then we'll just pretend all the Old Testament authors believed what we believe, even though they didn't write like that, they didn't think like that. And that's what they'll do, this retroactive putting their theology onto the Old Testament. The more rational position is that Jesus... Paul, the 12, James, they all grew up in a Jewish context. They all grew up in Old Testament theology. So it's more, it's more rational to take Old Testament theology and interpret their New Testament writings in light of Old Testament theology. How was Jesus preaching? He was preaching in the context of the Old Testament. Was he overturning the law or is he teaching in context of the law? Was he teaching a new apocalyptic vision or was it in the same strain as the exilic prophets, their apocalyptic visions? These people were Jewish. They believed Jewish theology, and we should interpret their statements in light of what we know of Jewish theology in the Old Testament, not vice versa. You don't, you, you're putting the cart before the horse when you're trying to take these concepts and retroactively apply them to the Old Testament. Yes, there were changes. Paul admits there's changes in how God operates. That's true. But he doesn't retroactively try to undo all of Old Testament theology, saying that those people back then did not believe what they wrote about. That's what Calvinists do. That's what this Sherlock Holmes does. But let's go on. 
from this heart comes new desires, like faith in Jesus. Thus, when we say that grace is irresistible, what we mean is that while one will necessarily be saved, and therefore place their faith in Jesus, they do this willingly. We see this in passages such as John 6, 37-40, where it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all of that. Did that proof text that you just used, did that, did that line up to your point? Your point was something about people do stuff willingly, uh, but then they are saved forever. That, that's not what's being communicated in John. Let's go to the context. And I wrote this on his channel. I, I, I put this in his comments. I don't think he actually responded to me. But let's look at the Bible now. The context starts in John 6. And in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. All right, let's scroll down a little bit. Jesus uh, goes away and comes to the other part of the sea. He goes to Capernaum. The crowds, they follow him. So Jesus is talking to a mixed crowd. These are not all legit loyal followers. Some of them are half-hearted followers. Some of them just want food. Uh, so you've got a mixed crowd going to meet Jesus in Capernaum. Then at verse 34, they say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He's saying, you guys are rejecting me. You guys are just kind of following me around asking for bread. I'm the bread. Listen to me. I will give you life. He says, for I've come down from heaven. And this is the part that's quoted by this Jesse Helms guy. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Notice this. Notice this. In Calvinism, God and Jesus do not have separate wills. They have the same will because God is a perfect being and the perfect being can't have contradictory wills. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but yours be done, God. And right here he says, I have not come down from heaven to do my own will. I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm doing what God wants me to do. And let me tell you what God wants me to do, that God is entrusting to me to do. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So we got some phrases in there. Calvinists take this to mean some sort of metaphysical absolute. Oh, this, this is him saying that metaphysically people are renewed in their energy and they'll never fall away. That's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. This is not about metaphysics. This is a tasking. God has tasked Jesus to do an activity. And here's a spoiler. Here's a spoiler. Did Jesus do that? Everyone that God brought to him did he lose none of those? Or, spoiler, was there one individual that was lost? He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And what does raise him up mean? Probably doesn't mean a resurrection from the dead. Probably means to present. Like, I'm going to bring these people with me. They're my believers, and they're my, my cho chosen, my special and I will present them to God as holy vessels, the righteous. And when God brings the day of Yahweh, these will be the premier people in the kingdom of God. It's probably what it means. Probably not talking about raising them up from the dead because, because of how this lose nothing is used. And let's flip to a later passage just so that we can see 
what he actually means by saying this. And it's not what Jesse Helms brings to the text. He doesn't understand the context. He doesn't understand how Jesus is using this. And he doesn't know the exception. He doesn't know that there was someone who was lost. So Jesus' will was not completely followed. God's will was not completely realized by Jesus. Now we find ourselves in John 17, 1, and this is right before Jesus is betrayed by Judas and led away for execution. Jesus spoke these words, and now Jesus is going to pray to God. And remember, God had given him the tasking, as we had just read. So God tasks him with a thing to do, and Jesus talks to God, and one of the subjects that comes up is his tasking. And did Jesus fulfill it 100%? Is 100% done, and there's no exceptions. The answer is no. The answer is no. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that you shall also, that your Son may also glorify you. Let's skip down. John 17, 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave to me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let's, let's, let's look at that phrasing. He says, those whom you have given me, I have kept. None of them is lost except the son of perdition. So judging from that phrase, the son of perdition was given to Jesus. The son of perdition was lost. Did Jesus 100% keep everyone that God has given him? Not according to this. There is an exception. And it says that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture is that? Where in the Old Testament talks about this? Or is it a general concept? If Judas and the son of perdition is probably referring to Judas, it is not explicit. It's not explicit in this text. The, the phrase is used once elsewhere in the Bible, which absolutely does not refer to Judas in that context. But in this context, it might refer to Judas. But what I'm getting at, what I'm saying is, if Judas did not fall away, no one would be able to turn to any Old Testament passage and say this prophecy failed. The idea being communicated here is how they usually use scripture fulfillment in the New Testament. And scripture fulfillment is not like prophecy being fulfilled as it was foretold in our crystal ball. Prophecy fulfillment is more of these events line up to these general concepts. And so you can't even really point to a scripture that is being fulfilled. You can't point to a prophecy and people don't know what this is referring to. They don't because it doesn't exist. The general concept might exist. There's some verses you might be able to string together, but this isn't prophecy fulfillment. What this is saying is this person was lost, but it serves this purpose to illustrate this general Old Testament concept. It's not saying it's a foregone conclusion. That's not how fulfillment is used in the New Testament. But Judas was given to Jesus and was lost. And how was he lost? Earlier in John, it talks about Satan coming to him and tempting him away. And so that is probably what it means to be lost. Just as Satan asks God to sift Peter, Satan is enticing people to betray Jesus. So that, that's how they're lost. It's not this... You know, this spiritual, they're non-regenerate. And it's definitely, it's definitely not this idea of preservation of the saints that once you're saved, you can never go back. Because there was a person who came to Jesus, was sent by God, 
And Jesus was unable to keep him. He's an exception to the rule because, because as John reads, Satan planted it in his heart. Satan was able to draw him away from Jesus. There's a spiritual warfare going on in this text. Another, another idea, this lost could be about death. The Romans had a habit of executing people who were prophets, who were part of ministries. And we don't see anyone dying who is following Jesus. Judas dies. He kills himself eventually. This is after John 17. So if, if this was about Judas and about death, it would be probably anachronistic. But John the Baptist also dies within, within the, the scriptures before Jesus. So it could be about death. It might be about something like that happening. Likely it's about Judas and likely it's about Satan sifting him. Spiritual warfare. People who were sent by God which fell away. Not preservation of the saints. Not perseverance of the saints. This guy, Sherlock Holmes, does not know what he's talking about. Let us continue. Look at this. We're a whole minute and 12 seconds into his video. So let's play him some more. So what about perseverance of the saints? Here, I'd like to look to the Westminster Confession of Faith for some more guidance. The confession states, and I quote, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So here's the question then. Your proof text is, of course, in John 6 when he says that none of here's the will of the Father, that none of them which come to me shall fall away. Did that happen? Did none fall away? Or was there one exception? Read the text. Read the text. Was that task, and it was a task, it wasn't metaphysics, it wasn't uh, foretelling the future, it was a task, and it was a task that succeeded with exceptions. With exceptions. And exceptions are where the proof is. It, the proof that it's not metaphysics, it's not foretelling of the future, it's not Calvinist understandings. It's not, because you got these prominent exceptions to quite a lot of stuff. There's exceptions of God changing his mind in the Bible, exceptions of God being surprised. So, so God doesn't know everything in the future. Some things that happen that God does not predict. And, and sometimes his taskings are not accomplished. His will is violated. And, and that's a big no-no to these Calvinists. They're like, oh no, if God doesn't get his will, everything falls apart. But guess what? The lawyers, the biblical scholars, the scribes, they rejected the will of God for themselves. And guess what? Also, this individual violated God's will. God wanted none to be lost. There was one lost. So no perseverance of the saints. No, no preservation of the saints. No perseverance of the saints, whatever he wants to call it. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't exist. Your proof text counters your point. Your proof text undoes what you believe that proof text says. Unquote. What this means is that those who are truly elect and therefore have genuine faith will persevere till the end. This is of course not due to their own ability, but rather because God sustains them. Here the confession further states, and I quote, the perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. Uh, he flashed a little triggered symbol, you know, like an Armenian's going to get triggered. Uh, but guess what? 
Armenians should not be triggered about some bearded Calvinist guy just talking nonsense that's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. You're just spouting off. It'd be like talking to maybe someone who's a Mormon or someone who is a Hindu and they say, oh, there's no free will. And I'm not saying the Mormons and Hindus believe that. But it'd be like talking to them and I would just sit there like, mm, you're just you're just talking. You have you're not backing it up. There's no evidence. And and the evidence that you do present undermines your point. Your evidence that you present is evidence against you. Upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from And this is all Gnostic regeneration. The Gnostics had this idea that there was a spiritual elect who are, were imbibed with the spirit to understand the spiritual truths. And the Calvinists, they get into this all the time. They say, oh, you're not regenerated, so you don't know what the Bible says. Only the spiritual can read the Bible. Only the elect knows the Bible. And we Calvinists, we live in our echo chamber, and we only accept things that we say among ourselves. And no one else can read the Bible but us Calvinists because we're the regenerated Gnostic elect. It's Gnosticism. These ideas are not Christian ideas, they're not Jewish ideas, they have no place in a Jewish Bible. All of which ariseth all the certainty and infallibility thereof. All of this means that one with true faith cannot permanently turn away from God, and certainly cannot lose their salvation by sinning. On this subject, we can turn to passages such as Ephesians... So, your proof text, let's, let's go back to it, it says, All who the Father sends me, are they the chosen ones? They, uh, his will is that I will keep. So Judas, if if the if it's talking about Judas, the son of perdition, Judas is sent by God. He's a chosen one, yet he falls away. How does that work with your theology? You haven't thought about your theology. You haven't given it critical thought. But let's talk about Ephesians. One thirteen through fourteen, where it states. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed in the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Also look to Philippians. So what is Paul's ministry? What is Paul teaching? What's so radical? Why is he persecuted in all these churches? It's because he's preaching something radically new, uh, that the Jews, they persecute him. He's, he says, I am in bondage because of circumcision. If I didn't preach about circumcision, I would not be in chains. So what's so important about circumcision that makes everyone hate Paul and jail him? Can you answer that? He is claiming, Paul is claiming, that we are saved apart from following the law. So the ceiling he's talking about is your faith in God seals you for the day of redemption. He's not talking about this spiritual regeneration and now you can never do any wrong again in your life. They're perseverance of the saints. No, he, he doesn't do that. And in the Bible, we hear things like make your salvation sure and you can reject God and you will be rejected. Paul's idea was not once you accept God as a king, once you accept Jesus as son of God, your route to salvation, his idea was that now you could never, ever lose your salvation ever in any context, even if you reject God. If you go on the warpath against God and then hate God, you're out. You're out. Paul's point was these laws, following these laws, do not 
save you. You are sealed by the death and blood of Jesus who has died for your sins. He's not talking about this spiritual Gnostic regeneration. He's not doing anything like that. And reading those into those verses, it's an idiosyncratic reading. You're not dealing honestly with the text. You're not looking at alternative readings. You're not looking at the context. And you're not playing this out how this would have to work in Paul's theology, especially considering, especially considering that if that's what he's teaching, Calvinism, that's a radically, radically new doctrine that you would think he'd explain a little bit more than these fleeting statements that you Calvinists point to. Just like the entire book of Romans is all about law. It's all about circumcision. Paul talks about circumcision more than the Old Testament. Why does he focus on that rather than Calvinism? Why? What is his point? What is he getting at? What's his ministry? Why is he hated? What are people saying about him? And it's not that he's a Calvinist. It's not. That's not why he's being persecuted. He's not teaching Calvinism. He's preaching against the law, which gets him in hot water. And that's what this verse is about and not this Calvinist stuff. Philippians 1.6, which says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or in John 10. That was proof. Oh, I'm convinced. No, it's a general statement. You can make general statements about the future that are generally applicable. And we see that language throughout the Bible. It's not a proof text. And 27 through 30, where it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What does that mean? What is he saying? He's saying, I'm powerful. I'm God. No one's going to thwart my will. And so if there's someone who believes in me and wants to be with me, I'm going to protect him. No one's going to snatch him from me. No one's going to come and, and override my power and pull him away. That's what he's saying in that verse. But we see people like Satan trying to sift people out. And they go by their own volition. What he's saying is people are not going to be taken against their will away from me. That's what he means in context. He doesn't mean preservation of the saints, perseverance of the saints. He doesn't mean that. And trying to read that into that, it's not there. I and the Father are one. By yeah, also, by the way, there are lost sheep, are there not? In the Bible, there's lost sheep. And when one, one lost sheep, one lost sheep returns, how, how do sheep become lost? In Calvinism, perseverance of the saints, do, do sheep become lost? Jesus goes and finds lost sheep and brings them back into the fold. That refutes your ideas. The sheep refute your theology. Now, you might be asking, what role do works play in this whole equation? We'll find out next time as we begin our investigation of the doctrine of sanctification. Oh, oh, no. All right, so that's bad. So his proof texts are actually evidence against his beliefs. He quotes John talking about God's tasking. It's a tasking. It's not foretelling the future. It's not metaphysics. It's a tasking to Jesus to make sure none fall away. And none do fall away with exceptions. There are exceptions. And it's important to note what those exceptions are and why they're exceptions. If that sheep was never brought to Jesus, then it wouldn't have to be an exception, would it? So what's the language? What does it mean? And what does fall away mean? Does it mean death? Does it mean uh, Satan? converting someone to another side. 
what does that mean? And could Jesus have failed? Jesus didn't have to complete the tasking that was given to him. And he says, he says, my will is to do the will of the Father, that we have separate wills. I'm not here to do my own will, but I'm here to do the will of my Father. So Jesus did not have to complete this tasking. It's a tasking. To read it otherwise is just to ignore the context, ignore what's happening, ignore the implications. And all his other proof texts are along the same lines. He doesn't understand the ministry of Paul. He doesn't understand the ministry of the Twelve, the context in which these things were written. And he doesn't understand what's being advocated by these authors. All right. If there's any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to put them on the God is Open webpage or even on this YouTube video here or also put it on our Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening.